And so uh, as we're in the book of Revelation, you, you can go ahead and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Um, the text we're going to be in for this morning is 12 through 17. And as you guys are turning there, uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about uh, Pergamum, okay? And, uh, and about uh, that city and, and kind of this letter. And then after I tell you about that, uh, Mr. Kevin's going to read the text for us, and then we'll get into, into the exposition of that. But um, So on the, roar, and the road north from Smyrna follows the coastline some 40 miles, and then turns inland towards the, toward the northeasternly direction uh, up to the valley of the Caiacus River, okay? So on the screen, I don't know if you can see it for sure or not. I tried to mark it with an X. You guys can see the X, right? Big red X. Um, that's where Pergamum is. And so, you know, um, up from Smyrna. And so when we talked about originally, when we said, you know, these letters are in this order, and some people say, hey, that's, it's a, they're in this order for some kind of a special purpose. It, it could be. I mean, God's sovereign over all things. So is it, are they in the order for a special purpose? Yes, because God put them there. On the other end of the, of, the, of the thing, it's just a very logical way that they're there because of the way that the Romans' roads would run. And if you are a, a male person in the day, uh, then you would, that's, this is the route that you would probably take up and back and around and then back out to, to Rome. Okay, so about 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea stand this impressive uh, capital city of Pergamum. So Pergamum is actually the capital city of the Asian area over there for the Roman Empire, okay? Um, it's um, Pliny, uh, uh, which uh, Pliny the Elder or, or Pliny the Younger. I'm thinking Pliny the Elder because of the, the time period, but you can Google that. Uh, Pliny called Pergamum by far the most distinguished city in Asia. It was built on a cone-shaped hill, a thousand feet in height, it dominated the surrounded valley of the Caiacus. Uh, its very name in Greek, Pergamum, means citadel, which means a fortress, right? Now, if you're noticing something, a lot of these cities were built up on hills. Do you know why that was? It was just easier to defend, right? Um, Pergamum uh, became the finest flower of the Hellenistic civilization, quote unquote. It's boasted a library of more than 200,000 volumes and this library was second only to that of the one in Alexandria. So if you're familiar with history, there's a lot of books here in Pergamum. That was a very big achievement. Um, Pergamum was also prominent in baking and, uh, not baking, I mean, maybe they were, banking, money, finance, textiles, fish dealers, and the production of parchment and pottery. And in fact, legend has it that parchment was actually invented here when the supply of papyrus, uh, papyrus in Egypt was cut off. Hence, the library, probably, right? I mean, if they had all this extra uh, papyrus, they could write on it. Um, it was, this was the capital of the Roman Empire in, in, in Asia, like I said. Moreover, it was also the leading religious center in Asia, with temples and shrines dedicated to Zeus, to Athena, to Dionysus, uh, and uh, As As Asclepius? Uh, he's the god of healing. That's where we get the whole uh, snakes around the stick thing for medicine. Uh, that's, his, that's his scepter. Uh, he was known for that. Um, interesting, isn't it, that the god of healing in the ancient Roman world is a snake? Weird, right? We'll end there with that. It's a great 40-foot high altar to Zeus, which is what you see here. Now, this is not currently standing. This is, a, this is a, an artist restoration of what they believe it looked like based on what is left there, Okay. Now on this, this, is, this was the most remarkable 
of all of the altars. This was the one to Zeus. It jutted out near the top of the whole mountain. So you have this whole mountain peak, and then you have this at the top of it. This famous frieze, which is what's a frieze is basically, I had to Google this too. So if you're, if you're anything like me, you're like, what are you talking about? Well, this is what I'm talking about. Around the, the base there, uh, you see this uh, sculpted stuff around the base. That's called a frieze. Uh, if you're more artsy than me, then you already knew that. But um, this famous frieze around the base of the altar depicts the gods of Greece in vicious combat against the giants of the earth. Kind of this idea between the gods and the titans, that whole battle, if you're familiar with Greek-Roman history. Pergamon was the official center in Asia also for the imperial cult. So if you remember, what we were talking about with that is they would also build shrines to the emperors that are over in Rome. And so this was the first one to raise one to a living ruler. Most of them they did after they died, right? This one was the first one to do to a living ruler, the very famous Caesar Augustus, okay? Um, One theologian notes, that as a traveler approached Pergamum by the ancient road from the south, that the actual shape of the city of the hill would appear to be a giant throne above the plain of which the seat of Zeus would be on top of, okay? Now that matters for what Kevin is about to read to us. So Mr. Johnson is going to read. These guys are going to click along so you can follow along. So go ahead, brother. Revelation. 1217, to the church in Pergamum, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwelt. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to the idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings um, of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thus says the word of God. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this text in Revelation. Uh, We thank you for the history that we can know about this city. Uh, But most of all, Lord, we thank you for this text because of how it's going to apply to us today. So we ask that you would enlighten our minds, um, quicken our hearts, uh, that you would bring Uh, understanding to this and application to this for each of us. We ask that your name would be heralded, that your gospel would go forward, that your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, would be glorified in the preaching, teaching, and the hearing, and the reading of this word. As you have told us, we will be blessed in the reading and in the hearing of it. We thank you and praise you for this text. It's in your name. All God's people said, amen. Uh, So in this text, we see that it starts off right with this introduction then of who Jesus is. Is he says in twelve or in two twelve there you know uh, the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword and this is a throwback to what he said also in Revelation one one sixteen as John is is explaining who this who this Jesus is remember I said this book of Revelation is the pulling back of the curtain so we can see more of who Jesus is you know we saw him in his human form well we didn't see him but 
they saw him in his human form when he was here the first time. Now we're seeing him in his divine form with all of his authority, with all of his glory, with all of his wonder. We're pulling back the curtain to see him in all of his majesty. And he starts by saying, the one who has the two-edged sword. We need to understand at the beginning of this that Jesus is the ultimate ruler. I don't care who's in the White House. I don't care who's overseas. It doesn't matter. I don't care what the UN says or what the WHO says or what Trump or Biden. None of that matters. Jesus is Lord, period, point blank, end of story. That's why he's saying this in Pergamum too. You have to remember who he's writing to. Pergamum is the capital city in Asia, right? They're one of the leaders of the cult of imperial worship. Who's the leader of that? Caesar Augustus, right? Now, God told us in Romans, interesting that it's in Romans, right? God told us in Romans that the government bears the sword to do so and to, to rule the people, right? And he talks about the sword of judgment, of ruling, of the authority and the ability to rule. And God says that's a good thing. He, he, God brought the government into place. So I don't care what side of the aisle you, you find yourself voting on, whoever is in the office, God put them there in every single country whether you like them or not, because God is sovereign over all things, and he has a plan and a purpose for everything, okay? And so John is writing this, and Jesus is saying this to the people of Pergamum so that they can understand, yeah, I understand that Rome wields the sword. What you need to understand, what we need to understand is who wields the ultimate sword? Who wields the two-edged sword? Jesus does. Jesus does. So he is the ruler, he is the lawgiver, he is the judge, he is God. That's what he's saying here right at the beginning to his letter to Pergamum. That matters because of the next verse. It matters because of where they are, the context that they're in. And so this two-edged sword is a two-edged sword in today's text. Not just because he says that, but because of why, what he's going to say. He's going to say, in just the next thing, so why don't we go there and look at it. Um, first of all, there's a co commendation, so this is good for them. So it's something that he's happy about. But he's also, here in just a little bit, he's going to say, tell them something he's not so happy about. That's the two-edged sword, right? Either it's good about you, but there's also bad about you, and he's about to tell us that. And I think probably the same could be said for us. So here's the commendation, the good that he has to say. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my favorite, my, my, I don't think it's his favorite, um, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, what does he say here twice in this verse? Did you catch it? This is where Satan dwells. This is why it's so important for Pergamum. This is why it's so important for us to understand who it is who has the two-edged sword. They are in the midst of a place where Satan dwells. And he tells them, I want you to know, and so I'm telling you, based on this text, I want you to know, Jesus sees you. Jesus knows where you're at. Not in a way of like, I see you and I know where you're at, although that's true. He's telling this to Pergamum to say, listen, I understand where you're at. I understand what you're going through. And I see you. It's not lost on me. And by the way, I have the two-edged sword. I will bring justice. Don't worry. You let me take care of Satan and his throne, right? And so this is the good thing that he's saying to them is he's saying two things. 
He's saying they are being loyal to his person and, and loyal to his salvation, to, to who saves. In the text, right? So I'm not going to put the text back up there. You have it in your copy of God's word. But going back to that, he says, firstly, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. And I don't know about you, it is going to be a temptation, and, and I'd, be, I'd be lying to you if I told you otherwise. It is going to be a temptation for me. It's going to be a temptation for you. It's going to be a temptation for all of us. On the days that they start actually persecuting us because we're Christians, the days they start actually locking us up, heaven forbid, the days they actually start murdering us, like Antipas, it is going to be very tempting for us to pull back. It's going to be very tempting for us to be like, you know, I, I did mean this, but like, not so much that it's going to kill me. Now, I believe by the Spirit of Christ, we will all have victory over that. But we would be lying to say it wouldn't be a temptation. We'd be lying to say it wasn't a temptation to them. This is why he tells them, this is good that you did this. You did not pull back, even in the face of my faithful witnesses being destroyed for my namesake. The second thing that this matters is, is uh, I want to ask you this morning, but this is uh, kind of a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer back, but not only you, but our society, we need to understand who is Jesus? I mean, who is he? I've said this quote plenty of times. You've probably heard it, but uh, C.S. Lewis had this famous thing where Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord, right? And as a good preacher, he, he makes them all with the L's there, so you can remember what that is, right? But, but the idea behind that is either Jesus was lying about who he is, he's not really the Savior, he's not really born of a virgin, he's not really God in the flesh, he's just lying, or he's a lunatic, he's crazy, he thinks he's that, but he's not, or he is that, and he was telling the truth, right? Those are your, those are your options. And so this is another thing that he's saying, we were loyal, or they were loyal, I hope that we're loyal, to his person. Who do we say Jesus is? Do we say that he is just a really wise person who had some good teaching about the golden rule, how to, how to care for one another and not be a jerk to one another? Is that all he is? Or is he the creator and sustainer of the universe who had to die because of our wretchedness? Who is Jesus? I mean, can Jesus simply just be our friend or does he also have to be our Lord? Also, loyalty to his faith. What did Jesus teach? And as we're going to see here in a minute, that also matters. Because, uh, now if you remember, and I know it's, it's every week we, we come back here, and so there's weeks in between this stuff. If you remember the Ephesian church, the church of Ephesus, they were very, very good at church doctrine, but not so great at the works of love and all those kind of other things, right? But doctrine and love both matter. You can't just have a church that's all lovey-dovey and that the doctrine is so watered down that you can't even really know what's what. And so what did Jesus teach? What did Jesus teach about all kinds of things, not just the things that we like talking about? And so that is what he says to the church of Pergamum so far. He says, you didn't deny salvation through me, and you didn't deny who I am. And I want to differentiate those two things, because I can say, hey, Jesus is the only way to be saved, but then the rest of my doctrine can be really off and really bad. I think, unfortunately, that's what happened here in Pergamum. So I want to end this first point as we go to the next one by saying, listen, he sees and he knows and he cares, Jesus does, for you. The strength of this church in Pergamum was their witness for Christ, even in the face of those things. 
But then it goes on. I said it's a two-edged sword. There's not only the, the good, but there's the bad. Here's the complaint that he has for the church in Pergamum. And I pray that this is not the complaint for us. But this is where some self-examination needs to take place, right? So here's the complaint. He says, but I have a few things against you. And when we read that, just so you know, when I started off, when, when we read this, I think we're also tempted to be like, this is not like, hey, uh, kids, I told you to, to clean your room. You did a pretty good job cleaning your room, but you know, you forgot these socks or something like that. What he's saying here, it, you need to hear it for what it is. It's not just, hey, it's not clean enough. He's saying that this is a big deal. Okay, so let's read the text. He says, I have these things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So, if the Pergamum church was strong on witness, they were equally weak on doctrine, like I just said, right? And so here, as you're a note taker, these are the two things he had a problem with, and we're going to define these. He had a problem with the doctrine of Balaam, and he had a problem with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, historically, if you know your scriptures, and I'm sure you guys do, so forgive me for this for just a minute, but in the book of Numbers, this is where we talk about Balaam and Balak and all this kind of stuff. And what happened there is, so you have Israel, who's coming out of the wilderness, right? So Exodus is happening. They do the whole golden calf thing earlier, and now they're on the way, meandering around in the wilderness. In the book of Numbers, uh, this bad king calls a prophet to come. And he says, I want you to curse these guys. He tries to curse them. He can't curse them. And so he goes on his way because God won't let him curse them, okay? But the text also says in Numbers 25, while, the Israels live, uh, while, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And that's what he's talking about here. And then he goes on in Numbers 31, 16 to say, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord and incurred of Peor, uh, I'm sorry, at the incident of Peor, so that a plague came on all the congregation of the Lord. So what John is doing is he's writing to his audience saying, remember back to the Old Testament where the, 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 the women of Moab, through the, uh, through the information of Balaam, uh, came down and seduced the people of Israel. And what they did was they started to do, do these, um, these uh, worship services where they were engaged in heavy promiscuity, to worship a deity, and then they would also eat the food that they sacrificed to these false gods, these, these demons. That's what, that's, that's, that's what they're doing. Demon worship uh, through sexual activity and then feasting, okay? And what Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamum is that they are now doing very similar things. This incident in the history of Israel along with the golden calf, were the two most despicable incidents in the wilderness wanderings. And every Jewish child growing up would hear about these and hold them in deep disdain as a mark against their people that they could ever do those kind of things. Which is right. I mean, we look at it too, this far removed, and we think, you guys just came out of Egypt, and the first thing you do is make your own golden calf and worship it? What in the world were you thinking, right? Well, same with this. So these two things. And then you have this. Okay, so that's the doctrine of Balaam. I'm going to tie these into us in just a minute. Okay, just go. I'm giving you a history lesson. Then we're going to apply it. 
Now, the Nicolaitans. Unfortunately for us, a lot of scholars aren't really sure what this is, okay? So what is the doctrine of Nicolaitans? I'm going to give you some options, and I'm going to tell you my view. Now, you should do your own research. You should be your own Berean, so you can come up with your own idea of why this is. But I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what the three main views are and why I hold the view that I hold, okay? The three main views of what this doctrine of the Nicolaitans are, they're, uh, the Nicholas, this guy named Nicholas, uh, and his followers had fallen into error and apparently had adopted a Gnostic cosmology, which just means a higher level of knowledge of the cosmos, right? So like secret hidden knowledge, right? Secret hidden knowledge um, that you only got through like special practices or all those kind of things. This view had also led him to embrace a form of adoptionism in Christology. Again, 50 cent theological words, which means this, which claims that the spirit of Christ came down on human Jesus while he was baptized, stuck around with Jesus until crucifixion, and then that spirit of the Christ left Jesus when he was on the cross. Do you all understand why that's heresy? If you don't understand why that's heretical, come and talk to me afterwards and we can explain that. that that's fine. But that is heretical, okay? Second thing that this could be is that the Nicolaitans were a group seeking to impose a unique authority over the people of God in Pergamum and also in Ephesus, if you remember, it was in the book of Ephesus too. Or not the, not the book of Ephesus. It was to the Ephesian church in this letter. In the book of Revelation, in the letter to the church of, of Ephesus. Anyway, I digress. So they were seeking to hold uh, power over them. Perhaps uh, this view derives from the breaking down of the word. So if you take the word Nicolaitans in Greek and you parse that out, it's Two words meaning to conquer, Nike, right? That's the word Nike, to conquer, to conquer people. Hence, according to this view, they were people conquerors. A lot of Protestants will point to this and be like, see, that's what y'all Catholics are doing. You have all this hierarchy in the church, and it's just so you can have authority over the people. And so you have different tiers of Christians. You have the super Christians who are in charge, and you have the regular Christians who are doing the other things, and then you have the bottom of the barrel Christians, or whatever levels that they had. I'm just kind of making that up as I go. So that's option two. Option three, the Nicolaitans was an antinomian movement whose uh, ascendance came to be traced as a misrepresentation of Pauline liberty uh, who in, uh, incited many to be connected with the special pressures of emperor worship and pagan society. Let me again uh, translate that for you out of, uh, out of uh, doctorate commentary speak. Uh, what he's saying here is this antinomian basically is this. They, they were taking the liberty that Paul gave them, and they were saying, yeah, we're just going to push that as far as we can. Uh, I'm okay, you're okay, so long as we've got Jesus, and we can party, we can do whatever we want, and we can be just as much a part of this Roman imperial, you know, Augustus Caesar worship as we want. We'll go along to get along, and that's okay because we're covered by the blood of Jesus, right? Again, that's, that's wrong. So which of these three views is it? I don't know, because neither do they. But I can tell you what I think it is. I think it's a little bit of all of it. I think what it is, is Neapolitan ice cream. Does that make sense? I think it's Neapolitan ice cream, and depending on how you scoop, for you as an individual, you can have all three flavors, you can take just two, you can have just one. It kind of depends on you and your own heart proclivity. I think that's what the Nicolaitans are. And the reason I think that is because, now going all the way back to our text and letting the text speak, is because in Revelation he says, who, there are some who hold to the teachings of Balaam who did these kind of things, so also who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So I think it's all of the above, and also because the scholars don't know which one of the three it is, I say, well, there's got to be evidence for all of the three, 
which makes sense to me. So I also, by the way, and you should do this, I went back and I read through the book of Ephesians, the actual book of Ephesians, because he's talking to the Ephesians church, right? And I was like, I wonder what the early church might have heard that would have made them think that way. And then I got into some text for my own. I thought, hey, there's some scriptures in here about having knowledge of the holy. That sounds a little bit like extra biblical knowledge that maybe only the super Christians could have, maybe. It also talks about a hierarchy structure, right? In Ephesians is where it talks about the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the church. It talks about slaves and, and masters. It talks about people in the, uh, in the government and outside of the government and submission, all those kind of things. I'm like, oh, there's a hierarchy structure there. Can you see then where some of these things might, and then it talks about the full armor of God and all these kind of other spiritual things. I'm like, oh, I could see where maybe if I wanted to, I could take this letter to Ephesus, uh, this letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote, and I could twist that into, hey, what we need is a higher spiritual knowledge, and I'm going to show you how to get there. And by the way, once you attain the higher spiritual knowledge, then you can be a leader in the congregation, but until you get there, you can't. But here's the point. The reason that this is a complaint is because Jesus is saying you can't have one foot in the world and one foot with me. That's the bottom line. It took all that for me to get there. I'm sorry, but I wanted you to have that. Because what does that mean for us today? Is there some cult of Balaam today? Is there some cult of the Nicolaitans? I would say yes in both of those. I'm going to tell you what I think they are. One is the whole LGBTQ whatever. In my mind, that's the cult of Balaam, sexual pro proclivity, offering to idols, doing all that kind of stuff, and, and like, hey, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, and so therefore I can do whatever it is that I want, and therefore, you know, love everybody and accept everybody and all those kind of things. That's a teaching of Balaam. And what's in the Nicolaitans when you're overly political and you find all your identity in whatever side of the aisle that you're on, and you care so much about politics that you get angry and you post things on Facebook or Twitter or Snap, Face, Chat, Bot, whatever. Your identity is not in... Listen, if you're somebody who's here this morning who struggles with same-sex attraction and you're a Christian, that is not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. You are a Christian who, by God's grace, will have victory over your same-sex attraction. But there is no such thing as a practicing Christian who is doing all these sins. And furthermore, I'm not just talking about people who struggle with same-sex attraction. I'm talking about if... I don't care. If it's not in context of marriage, it's sin. Point blank, period, done. That's what Jesus said, not me. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. And furthermore, Jesus says to you and to me, he says to us, I know where you dwell. And so he understands our culture and the context. He sees what you see, and even more than that, because he knows everybody's heart. He sees what Satan is doing here, and, and I'm not saying... Just side note, we'll get there later. Don't ask me about this today. We'll get there later. I have a sneaking suspicion that America is actually great Babylon later in the book of Revelation. I've talked about this with my brother-in-law and stuff. I have, I have lots of reasons for that. We'll get there later. You can talk to me about that later. What you need to know for right now, because this is where we're at right now, is whatever is going on in this country or any other country, let's say you didn't live in America and you lived somewhere else. God, Jesus would still say, I see where you're at. And by the way, this world is not our home. And so it is fair for Jesus to say to anybody, I see where you live. You live at the very place of Satan's throne. Now, I think this directly applies to us in America today because of what I do see going on. 
all the hate and the wickedness and the lack of care and concern and just the flagrancy of sin that's out there. And I'm going to tell you something else. If you are a Christian and you're in this room today and you're hearing this and all you're hearing is, yeah, all those people out there, understand our own hypocrisy and knock it off. Now let's move on. You can't play both sides. You have to commit without continuing. Uh, you, listen, if you're not committed to one or the other, you are, you've committed. You've committed to being neutral. And he's going to say later, if you're either hot or cold, or I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So that's, you got to make a choice, which is the next point that he makes. The choice needs to be made. He said, you've got some good things going on. You've got some bad things going on. It's time to choose. As somebody tells me, fish or cut bait, right? That's what you got to do. And so here's what he says in Revelation 2.16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So he's telling them ahead of time, look, I've got this two-edged sword. I've got this two-edged sword and I am ready to use it to fight on your behalf. But if I need to, I will also turn it broadside and give you a spank because I am your God and Father in heaven and I'm here for you and fighting for you, but I'm also here to correct you. That's what he's saying. And the choice is up to us. And so he tells us, this might be a surprise to you if you're a note taker, you must repent or you'll be rejected. Now maybe you're here and you're saying, hey, but you said once saved, always saved. So how can we be rejected? Yeah, absolutely. Once saved, always saved. And what I'm going to tell you is, if you are truly saved, then you will hear texts like this and it will make your heart say, well, then I want to repent. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to do whatever I need to do because I want to repent because I don't want to be rejected. That should be your answer. So we cannot say we belong to Jesus and consciously continue to practice sin. Now, I am not perfect. I'll be the first one. If you say, is there anybody here who's guilty and who deserves eternal damnation? That's me. That's me. I'm in the front of the line and I'll lead the pack. I understand that. But I will also, with the same, well, I guess with the other hand, say, but also I'm saved by grace and by grace alone. And so any righteousness you see in me is only through Christ Jesus. But he tells us not to make the mistake, it is Jesus who is going to judge. He says in 1 John 3.19, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Let me pause here and just be very clear for a moment. If you are not perfect today in Christ Jesus, you are normal. Okay? What he's saying here is not that today, the day that you accept Jesus does not mean that that's the day that you're perfect, okay? What he's saying is here is you can't, you can't say, I'm going to give you a, re, a, I'm gonna give you a very tangible, potentially uh, like a, a real world example, right? I can't say to my wife every day, hey, I love you. I love you. And then say to some other woman, I love you too. I can't do that and live, right? <laughs> and so Jesus says the same thing. I have the two-edged sword. You can't tell me you love me and then tell Satan you love him. Somebody going to die, right? It's, and it, hopefully, hopefully you repent and it's not you and instead it is Satan because he will be thrown off of his uh, throne of lies. He smells like meat and cheese. Um, if you don't get that, that's okay. Um, the point I'm making is this. To make a practice of sinning 
consciously choosing sin. Now, we're all going to fall. I, I, I repent on a regular basis to my friends, to my family, to my brothers and sisters in Christ who hold me accountable, and I'm thankful that they do, to my kids um, when I wrong them. Um, so I'm not perfect, and neither are you. But it's, it's when we make a conscious, continual practice of sinning that you ought to really question if you're saved at all. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So bind my wandering heart to you. I want, that's one of the songs I want sung at my funeral, just by the way, if you're taking notes. Um, so we need to be careful and not practice per, pergamimicry. I made that word up. So here's the last thing in closing. The compensation that we have for heeding today's word. Not my word, Jesus' word to the church of Pergamum, because that's the word for us, right? He sees us. He sees that we live where Satan dwells. He sees what's going on. He sees what's going on in the culture. He sees what's going on in our society. He sees what's going on in the family life. He sees what's going on at work. He understands that we live where Satan dwells and that the rules and the regulations and the standards are continuing to make it harder and harder to practice faithfulness. He understands that. And he says, hey, I want for you to understand the seriousness of this. Don't let the teachings of the Nicolaitans and the Balaams in. Instead, repent, turn from that, live on fire for me, and here's what you get in return. Here's the compensation. Uh, Daniel Aiken wrote about this text. He says, though believers and churches are constantly tempted to compromise both theologically and ethically, true followers of Christ will remain faithful and receive from the Lord the reward of eternal life. And here's how Jesus puts it. He who has ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So I want to break these down to you because these are, these are very kind of spiritualized things. And I, I don't know about you, but when I initially look at this, I'm like, all right, so I get a little bit of bread and a rock. Oh, okay. But it's the meaning behind them that matters. And it's the context of who he's writing to. So let me, if you would, let me go through that with you. This is what they mean, I, I believe. I believe what this means is spiritual nourishment. That's the hidden manna. When we come back to Christ, he feeds us. He told us in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you're not saved, if you don't have Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I wasn't, I don't know if you, if you're brand new today and you've never heard my testimony or anything about me or anything like that, just so you know, like I wasn't born in the church. Uh, I wasn't born in a pod. Uh, I'm just like you. I have a history. I have a past. I have regrets and scars. I was trying to fill my life with all kinds of things, substances, broken relationships, uh, adrenaline, rush, whatever, you know, living life on the edge. And I can tell you, there is nothing that fills your heart like Christ Jesus. And so it is the spiritual nourishment that we get. The second thing here is this public acceptance that's one of the things I strove for. Maybe that's one of the things that you strive for, is having other people like you, being accepted by other people. 
I didn't know what my identity was for a long time. I thought my identity was with, in whatever I was, right? I was the loud, obnoxious party guy, or I was the class clown, or I was the whatever. I have other ones that I'm too ashamed to admit, but I wanted public acceptance, and that's the stone. In ancient times, what would happen is, is uh, and you may be familiar with it, with it, with the uh, where it was talking about that Jesus was uh, had this parable, this guy who had this feast, and he invited a bunch of people. Well, back in the day, how do you know if you're invited to something or not? Well, oftentimes you would get a specific item of invitation, and oftentimes it was something like this: a particular kind of specially cut, crafted stone or a block of wood or some kind of other things. And maybe in, in our minds we think, well, that sounds stupid, but I mean, they didn't have texts and all those kind of things like that. And so they, they used what they had available. And so you need to think about this stone, right? This is a pure white stone, what he says, and it has something engraved upon it. This is, in essence, your invitation to the marriage feast. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So we're given a stone of public acceptance by the Lord. And then lastly, as you can see on the screen, personal relationship. What do I mean by that? Well, you're going to get a new name. There's a song. I really like it. I'm not sure. I think it's Jimmy Needham. You can Google that. But one of the lyrics that he says is... uh, I was once called Stain, S-T-A-I-N, and now I'm called Saint, S-T, how do you spell Saint, S-T-I-A-N-T. I knew it was the same letters, thank you. That's why I talk for a living instead of writing things for a living. Y'all would be appalled at my notes, it looks like some crayon. But what, what that means is, if you've ever been over to my house, for a, for, a long, for a long enough period of time, and I'm, I'm doing things, I'll call Elisa things like Smeezy. I call her Smees, ECPC, other names that I won't share with you. Um, she answers to all those names. Those are not her names. Those are, her name is Elisa. But she answers to those names to me. You know why? Because we have a personal relationship. He's going to give you a new name. Maybe you're here this morning and you struggle with that. What I mean by that is maybe you think your name is unworthy. Or maybe you think your name is ugly. Or maybe you think your name is stupid. Or maybe you think your name is, and you fill in the blank for you. But one day, when we conquer through Christ, when we overcome through Christ, he gives us spiritual nourishment for now to feed us and to keep us for now. He gives us public acceptance both for now and for later. And then also for later, he's going to welcome you in and he's going to say, welcome, beautiful, welcome, righteous, welcome, holy, Welcome, beloved one. I don't know about you, but I look so forward to hearing my new name. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. 
We ask that you would help us to not engage in pergamimicry, that you would keep us from falling into the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And as history continues to change, those doctrines and their application of them are going to continue to change. But we ask that in your grace and in your mercy that we would heed your word, that this word to Pergamum would also be a word to us and that you, by your grace and by your mercy, would cause our hearts to say, yes, Lord Jesus. You would cause us to repent, each of us from our own unique proclivities to engage in these doctrines of deceit and that we would come to you and that when we come to you, you would be quick as the father of the prodigal son, that you would run to us to meet us, to give us this spiritual nourishment, this public acceptance, and this personal relationship, Lord. It's in your name we ask for not only the protection that you give by your two-edged sword, but also the provision that you have as our Lord and kings. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, we're going to have communion. Um, 